0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now in our last review, we were joined by Greg Schigel, and we covered X-Men number 44. Uh, Magneto and the Toad have brought Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch back to their island castle headquarters in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it's a rather elaborate castle too. Uh, they have pulled them away from the Avengers. Uh, Magneto uh, has injured the Scarlet Witch, but they think humans did it long story. Uh, Listen back to our last couple of episodes for reminders. The X-Men have lost Professor X and they have been captured and are being kept in very elaborate traps uh, around this castle. Now, Angel escaped and has had a weird side adventure with Red Raven, the uh, World War II hero. We covered that last time. It's not super consequential. To this issue or to the x-men but it was still fun to read uh there was lots of bird people in in cloning chambers too so, <laughs> so that was a lot of fun uh so we are thrilled to be back for x-men number 45 today it's from june 1968 called when mutants clash written by gary friedrich with art by both Werner roth and don heck Uh, Inks by John Tardeglione and Letters by Sam Rosen. Uh, I am thrilled to welcome uh, Arturo and Corey returning guests back. I'll have you guys say hi in just a second. And uh, I'm very, very excited and honored to uh, welcome the author and I hope I can use the word scholar uh, Douglas Wolk here with us. Uh, Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, uh, where we might know you from. Tell us a little bit about you and your work and your relationship to the X-Men. Let's go in the order of Douglas Corey Arturo. Sweet. Hi, I'm Douglas Wolk. I'm the author
1: of the book, All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. Uh, My pronouns are he, him, or they, them, or others negotiably. Um, and I write about comics for a living. And I also teach comics history at Portland State University. Tell us what classes you teach. I think it's fascinating that people build curriculums around comic books. Uh, I, I literally just teach a comics history class once a year. It is a class about the evolution of American comic books and comic strips actually, going from the beginning of comic strips uh, and then, decade by decade from the 30s up to the present day um, really focusing on periodical comic books saddle stitched you know uh staples uh, come out in series that kind of thing uh as opposed to quote the graphic novel or web comics which we do a little bit at the end but it's really like this is the history of not just this medium but this particular form of this medium
0: Wonderful. Now, we've had Susan Kirtley on the
1: podcast before. Are you two two colleagues? Uh, She is the head of the department,
0: and I work for her. Oh, well, I didn't know about that connection directly. I did get the pleasure of attending uh, a lecture that she invited me to that you gave at the university, but I don't know that I realized you were in the same department. That's wonderful. Uh, Corey, let me have you go next.
2: Hey, uh, I'm Corey. He, him, they, them. Uh, I have no professional connection to the x-men or the comic world i uh i was a casual reader here and there coming up but uh after having met chad uh he kind of reopened me reopened my eyes and i've been consuming uh what's the word as much as possible i'll say uh ever since uh you can't really find me anywhere i'm thinking about putting together a spider-punk cosplay if that works out then I'll probably build an Instagram around that and continue, but we'll see how it goes.
0: Corey is my uh, closest straight friend. (laughs) It's good to see you, Corey. And then Arturo, do you want to go next?
3: Uh, Yes, but I'm more interested in hearing more about the spider punk costume, because I think that sounds awesome. I'm I'm Arturo (laughs) I'm Arturo Um, Loved X-Men since I was a kid And I'm fortunate enough uh, To be part of a podcast Called X's for Podcasts Where we talk about Marvels Mary mutants and magic because it's not just x-men anymore over there uh we cover a lot of the marvel stuff but me i stick to the x-men and the mutants um and i do a little bit of amateur photography action figure photography you can find me at mr toybox on twitter and instagram and my preferred pronouns are he him
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, Arturo, you are one of my very favorite guests. I'm so honored you came back with us today. Now, Douglas, let me tell you a little bit about my path to you. Uh, Now, I've had Susan on the pod. We did an episode focused on women in the 60s in comics, which is why I reached out to her because I'd read her book. Uh, I did not know you were colleagues till today, but Uh, I had a friend, George Michael, who's also been on the podcast, who gave me your book uh, for my birthday. Uh, He knew I was doing the pod work and he's like, this is something you need to read and I adored it. I have been a long-term Marvel fan for decades. Uh, I even worked on the handbooks line for a long time Wow! uh, back in the 2005 to 2012 era of those books. Um, But your book was really, really wonderful. It gave a scope uh, and... Consistency to the very complicated Marvel universe uh, in a way that uh, that was that was captured so elegantly and consistently, but also left so much more to be discovered. Um, one of the things I loved most is you you discuss how everybody has their own path through the universe. There's no right or right right or wrong way. You learn what you want. You pick up what you want. You delve in when you want. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, all of the marvels and how it came to be. Let's let's kind of start there. So the origin story of all the marvels is, uh, I guess, about
1: seven years ago. I had been looking for some kind of new big project to throw myself into, and my son uh, was about you know ten years old at the time, uh, and he and I had always read we'd always read comics together, but not superhero comics because you know, superhero comics are what my dad likes, correct? Uh, and. Then I got invited to teach a little history class about the history of American superhero comics uh, at a thing we have here in Portland, Oregon called Pugs for Portland Underground Grad School. And I put together a a PowerPoint for it and my son asked if he could see it and I said, sure. And he was like, oh, oh, this stuff is a complicated system. Oh, I like complicated systems. Hey dad, I wanna read all the Marvel superhero comics. Let's read them together it's like okay fine this this will this last a week uh it'll be like a nice week that we have together and then he just kind of kept going and after three months he was he'd read up to 1968 he was like actually dad i'm more interested in the modern crossover era like, in so many words like that was what he said I was like great you know let's 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 look at civil war together and we just kept reading like he and my wife and i still look at the comic together every day like that is our family ritual now And as we were going through it in a sort of like, but what if we read them all way, I was like, Oh, but what if I actually did read them all? What would that look like? What would it look like to read that whole gigantic story that's been going on for 60 years as a story? Um, what, what would the shape of that be? And I figured, okay, uh, if I do this, it'll take me like a year and a half to read everything and then another year to write the book. So two and a half years. I can do that. And six and a half years later, here we
0: are. (laughs) Getting a book like that pitched and then published, uh, that's a very unique approach. And clearly, I, I know I used the word scholar before, but you approach this from a very scholarly way, which is why I use that word. Uh, the scope of all of this is enormous, uh, and I have some questions about your experience with all that. But how did you pitch this book? And I'm and I'm confident it went through a number of revisions before <laughs> you finished it. Oh yeah, I mean the 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 book went through
1: massive revisions. Like the book was finished and turned in, and then my editor was like, "Actually, Douglas, this is terrible. <laughs> you need to reconceive the entire project." And I threw out about 90% of what I had and just started over, uh, which is part of why it took so long. But uh, pitching, it, pitching it was turned out to be not the hard part. Um, I had published a couple books before. Uh, I had an agent who was really good. Um, agent found a couple of editors who were very excited about it. Uh, and Penguin Random House ended up picking it up. Uh, it was picked up by an amazing, amazing editor named Ed Park, who was working there then, who I had worked with like 25 years ago at the Village Voice. Um, and then it was just a matter of like writing it in a way that would be good and could make sense and could be entertaining and meaningful to people who were not actually living inside my head. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that was the process of it, um, but uh, that, yeah, that's that's how that worked out.
0: You you have a brilliant way of uh, of kind of capturing Marvel as a company, which is kind of required in order to enjoy this. You've got to look through the different changes the universe went through, and you referenced several books in your book that I ended up ordering and then reading, uh, which taught me a lot along the way as well because. 40s Marvel versus 60s Marvel versus 80s Marvel. There's a ton of changes, uh, recessions and uh, uh, creative pushes. And um, you can see how something like Vietnam or Women's Lib completely changes the scope of the books, characters of color. So your, your book takes chapter by chapter different characters and kind of shows us how they change over time. So here's where we start with Spider-Man. Here's key issues along the way from these 60 years that I found fascinating. You do the same with the X-Men. You do the same with Black Panther. Uh, And the scope of all of that was uh, both fascinating and almost overwhelming, but you wrote it in a way that it didn't feel overwhelming at all. Uh, How did you decide which chapters to include and which to leave out? And I know that's a big question. Oh, yeah. No, um, there are... There's a lot more I wrote for this book than went into the book. There
1: are a few chapters that I was really happy with that I ended up cutting because they got in the way of the whole thing flowing as a book. Uh, a couple of them ac- actually ended up printing up as little chapbooks. Uh, one of them was one that went to people who pre-ordered the book at my my favorite comic book store, Books with Pictures here in Portland, Oregon. And then there's another one that I've been selling on the book tour. Like There's a, there's a Punisher chapter that was, a lot of fun to write I was real happy with and it just did not belong in the book and so that was that became its own little separate thing um there was a big old captain america chapter that i ended up like throwing out and stripping for parts there's a big old iron man section that that just kind of duplicated a bunch of stuff that was already there so that got cut um I've gotten a lot of fairly well-deserved flack for not having a a daredevil focus. Um, and like there, there is stuff that I have to say about daredevil, but it overlaps with what I have to say about some other characters. And so that, that did not happen. Um, but I also realized that going in like part of it was like, okay, I was going to hit a couple of things that were major touchstones, like Spider-Man, A, I'm not going to do a Marvel book and not have Spider-Man in it. B, I really like Spider-Man and have read a lot of, you know, I had already read a lot of Spider-Man, like, fine. Um, But also, it's like, this is my chance to, if not make a canon, at least kind of push a canon in directions I care about. Um, There's a big old Master of Kung Fu chapter, because that is one of my absolute favorite comics. It is problematic as hell. It is nonstop problematic. There is no issue with that thing that is not like ooh, ooh, there, ooh, ooh, and yet it is also fantastic. And when I went back and reread it for the book, think like, you know, like you, as they say, the suck fairy. You you read something you used to love, and you discover it's been visited by the suck fairy. It's it's suddenly gotten a lot worse in the intervening time. Master of Kung Fu had been visited by the suck fairy and by the you know masterpiece fairy like it had gotten worse and better while i had been not looking at it um, and just grappling with that series was so interesting and so compelling and there was so much to say about it It was like okay i am i'm gonna do i'm gonna do a master of kung fu thing and of course when i started writing it was like there is never going to be a shang chi movie there is never going to be a shang chi tv show there is never going to be a shang chi video game and of course there's a shang chi movie now like by the time the book came out i had actually bought a shang chi little golden book wow that's amazing so um yeah it it was partly like stuff stuff douglas cares about and partly things i had something to say about that would contribute to the book being a thing that you could read as a book instead of like, okay, yeah, there's
0: a chapter. It's okay. There's a number of, uh, and Arturo and Corey jump in anytime. Of course, there's a Ah. number of characters that uh, I would say most characters have changed with the times. Iron Man was the, you know, the guy from the Vietnam war, frankly, or the Korean war who had to plug himself in because he had shrapnel in his chest. Uh, And then he goes on to become the secretary of state, the multi-billionaire, you know, weapons designer, playboy. Uh, Thor was the guy with the walking stick who changed into the doctor. And now he's the king of Asgard. Um, Certain characters like Spider-Man have kind of stayed pretty true to themselves overall, but they still go through a ton of changes. Uh, The X-Men, of course, are characters who have gone through revolutionary amounts of change, but kind of stay on parallels of the same Name along the way, if you will. <laughs> Tell me uh, where you started as a fan with the X-Men. Uh, and then my follow-up question to that is, what is your opinion on 60s X-Men? Ooh. So uh, where I started with the X-Men was
1: th- the first Marvel comic that I bought with my own money, as opposed to reading them in the collection of the Kid who lived across the street, was Uncanny X-Men 138. Not 137, 138 is the one that is literally a plot summary of everything that has happened up to that point, which was really useful. Like the giant wall of text on every page, but it was like, there's so much here. And uh, then, uh, you know, that's near the tail end of the uh, John Byrne period. And I just kind of kept going from there. Um, And that was my introduction to that always enjoyed that. i read i think i got off the bus sometime not quite at the end of the claremont period but a little bit before uh and then of course eventually went back and rediscovered all that stuff uh as far as 60s x-men i mean 60s x-men almost always seemed to me like the like the larval form of the interesting x-men like there's stuff in there that could be made interesting, but it sure wasn't that interesting yet. Like, <laughs> um, if, as far as reading for pleasure goes, like I love the X Men First Class stuff, the the Jeff Parker uh, series from uh, the the two thousands. Like yeah. Yeah. that goes in and does, I think, much more interesting, more lively. Things with those characters than almost anything in the '60s themselves did. I like the Starenko issues. I like the Neil Adams issues. Who doesn't? Um, but X Men is is always the the runt of the litter.
0: Yeah, when I uh, when I interviewed uh, Roy Thomas, he was like, "This was like Marvel's last best team book. <laughs>
3: it, was, yeah. it was the worst
0: selling. We tried to reinvent it. We didn't really care about it. Uh, but there's the seeds of what comes later." Yeah. When did you first read the 60s stuff? Uh, And uh, Corey, I know you've read some with me along the way. And uh, Arturo, same question for you. When did you first read the 60s books? I read this. So I read
1: my real exposure to the 60s stuff actually came with uh, X-Men Classics. That's X-Men Classics, plural, not X-Men Classic, the Claremont reprint book. It it was the Baxter format, like recolored collection of the Neil Adams issues that... uh, Marvel published in, I want to say, like, 1983, maybe, maybe 82, maybe 83. And it's just, like, it's a three-issue miniseries. It's, it collects, like, just the Neil Adams stuff. And it was like, okay, so it's just a bunch of young superheroes, and they happen to be calling themselves the X-Men. But there's not really that much going on thematically. And most of the 60s X-Men I did not read until I started researching the book, honestly.
3: Uh, Archer, how about you? Honestly, not until the last couple of years. Uh, when I was younger, like the 60s stuff was kind of inaccessible. Uh, I was happy to jump back, you know, 100 to 150 issues in the past and feel like, wow, this is X-Men history. Uh, my jumping on point being basically like Claremont, Silvestri era. And I was lucky enough to be there for uh, Jim Lee's, you know, come up. Um so that's like what's near and dear to my heart. 60 stuff always felt like kind of, kind of like what, uh, what Douglas was saying. It was almost more interesting. What's going on in your imagination with these characters and concepts than what's actually happening on the page. That said, some of the design stuff is great. And like, we'll get into it when we go into the, the issue that we talked about today. Yeah. Um. But like my appreciation for Cyclops is simple and, immediately iconic design cannot be overstated like cyclops was just a great design right out of the gate and his power signature and uh so i mean i think artistically it's really fun i think uh a lot of the writing is very you know clotting and weird um so it's i think it's interesting to see it through a historical lens but i haven't really jumped into the 60s stuff as, if it wasn't for you, Chad, like I probably would have read <laughs> half as much of the stuff as I've read.
0: Uh, Corey, I feel like, ironically, you read mostly '60s stuff because of the podcast. Not <laughs> a, a lot of modern books. Do I have that right?
2: Well, I uh, so up and if you'd asked me that question a few months ago, that would be absolutely right. The first, uh, the first thing I cracked open and read in order uh, was the '60s stuff. Uh, prior to that, i had been doing comics a la carte. You know, I never really. I wasn't in a position to be able to say, OK, I'm going to get this every day and I'm going to follow this story. So uh, I have my introduction to the X-Men themselves were the cartoon, probably like a lot of people in their 30s, like my age. Uh, and then, of course, the movies. I uh, was just the perfect age for the for the movies when they came out as well. Uh, but since all this has started, all this being Gray Malkin Lane, uh, I have become a Gray Malkin Lane. Uh, with the sixties books, of course, but I've also jumped into uh the current era stuff, I guess. Uh started out with House of X or that Hoxbox, House of X, House House. X I actually bought that one. I bought that tray. I have it around here somewhere. I love it. So a much. Beautiful tray. That a was of, a
3: that's a good investment. Yeah. That's like a good solid I book I felt like it was.
2: <laughs> and uh, from uh, everything from there, I'm taking I'm taking recommendations from Chad and from uh from douglas's book uh so yeah i'm i'm kind of a i'm an open book i'm try i'm ready to consume any and every piece of anything that uh i might enjoy for it so yeah as far as the 60s goes i'm not going to say anything anyone else didn't hasn't said It's a little bit tough to read sometimes uh we'll get into some of it today about how we use entire pages to uh I don't know, exposit, if that's the word, some some things seem to be pretty obvious, but someone else said something that was interesting uh, about how it was, um, it, Arturo said it, it's your imagination that sort of filled in a lot of those gaps. Like we needed that as uh, the the royal we, as the 10 year olds that were reading this, or it was written for, like no one can out a 10 year olds. So why try, to, why try to do it? Just put, put some stuff out there and let their... Full amazing brains fill in the gaps, and then it's Those are the kids that ended up writing all the great stuff that followed, and then you know just sort of rolled on like that. So, I I appreciate it for laying that wonderful foundation.
1: So here's an amazing story about like where the '60s X-Men were in the kind of pecking order of Marvel. Uh, many years later, this is sometime I want to say in the late '70s, around 1980. Uh, there, Marvel was putting together a pitch for an X-Men animated show long before the actual animated <clears> show <throat> happened. Uh, but they brought Stan Lee in to be the pitch person. And there was an open question at that point of, uh, are we going to do the old team or are we going to do the new team? Uh, and so they had posters with all the characters and uh, the, like they were running through it with Stan Lee to make sure that he knew who all the characters were and so he was like okay so that's banshee right and he points to storm and uh <clears throat> whoever was was telling the story much later is like no, no no uh stan that guy is banshee and stands like but banshees are women yeah i know but he, he's yeah, one of roy's he's one of Ro- roy did that roy named a male character banshee oh roy <laughs>
3: The X-Men have been toying with gender since day one. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Roy, Roy and I talked about that a little bit. He wanted it to be a woman, but they felt like they couldn't have a woman villain. So they ended up making it a man at the last minute. We talked about that in my interview with Interesting. Him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, the, um, the whole Roy
2: and Stan thing is it's yeah. always fun to hear these little things back and forth and wonder all the stuff that we don't know and we'll never hear about. These in between them.
0: <laughs> these little nuggets. Uh, yeah, Douglas, on the on the podcast uh, again, you've recommended some books that talk a lot about Marvel history. I've gotten to know people like uh, Steve Englehart and Linda Fide and 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 the <laughs> and you see these names tossed around of the book, and then starting to get to know these people, <clears throat> questions like, "Oh, wow, this is a big company with a lot of history. It's crazy." Yeah. Um, My first introduction to 60s X-Men, I actually don't know if I've shared this on the pod before. I, uh, in the late 90s, when I started picking up X-Men, I was fascinated and wanted to know everything. And I I got a job. uh, uh, I don't know if I've told this story. I was 16 and things were a little bit shitty at home and I couldn't afford new comics anymore. So I went to the local comic book shop and I'm like, I want to work here every Saturday and you can pay me in comic books. And I probably looked like I was 12. (laughs) And uh, the, the guy's name was, uh, was uh, Cor- Corbin. He worked at Captain Comics in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Uh, and he's, he like just saw me as this little ballsy kid and was like, yeah, man, come. So I started working and got paid in comic books every Saturday. So I started picking this stuff up. And in the 90s, they put out a book called Uncanny Origins, which went back and told a lot of the stories uh, so then I started getting the Marvel Essentials, reading the old stuff. And I I, I was never disturbed by the 60s until I started this podcast. <laughs> but I saw it as I saw it as like this crazy origin story. We're like, oh wow, this is where Juggernaut comes from, and this is where the sentinels come from. Like it was always fascinating to me. Um when you look at uh, 60s, X-Men in particular, Douglas, uh, there's there's the seeds of what comes later, the Sentinel storyline being kind of key. The origins of, you know, Professor X's connection to Juggernaut, or you know, Cyclops being an orphan, or the Cyclops gene relationship. But a lot of it is very throwaway, weird, kind of crazy stuff. What are some of your favorite obscure stories from uh, '60s X-Men? Uh, and I know you have just a treasure trove of trivia along the way. Anything you want to <laughs> toss in here is great. All right, favorite. Uh, no, this is a super obscure one. Uh,
1: Jerry Siegel the Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel wrote a three-part angel story where two parts of it appeared in a Kazar reprint series and then the last part was in an issue of Marvel Tales and it's a mess it's a really interesting mess uh there's like a villain who has his headquarters in the base of the Statue of Liberty and it like it's a real kind of golden age of comic sensibility with, you know, the, the Warren Worthington angel in it. And that's, that's, that's just really weird and fun to see. Um, and you know, like, like I said, the, the, uh, the first story with, I want to say it's like number eight or number 10, the one with, uh, Unus the untouchable, um, number eight, at, number eight. Yeah. Um, that story is fascinating for what it tells us about hank mccoy and you can like again this is something that only makes sense in the light of stories that you're seeing 50 years later Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that hank has always been the cruel merciless one who manages to disguise it really well and that's what xavier trained him to be Uh, you know that is a story where he Comes up with his plan, refuses to explain it to his teammates, is just you just have to trust me, I'm the smart one here and then <laughs> threatens to starve Unis to death unless he gets with the program and from you know the way we see the beast now in the Krakoan stuff, like there's the germ of that there in that slapped together weirdly Kirby story that they had no idea that's what they were setting up, but they were.
0: The uh, I, I mean, we could talk Hank McCoy a lot. He's not really featured in today's issue much. In fact, do we even see him? He uh, he in that in, in that particular issue, X Men number eight, he leaves the team because he's furious about being mistreated by humans and then he immediately pulls his shirt off and joins a wrestling league. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's fascinating. We also just covered the blob Eunice uh romance or bromance in uh, in the blob trial recently, yeah, which that's we, my favorite. Yeah, which I we love. love. <laughs> One of the strangest things about the 60s is the constant working in of not only one-off villains uh, like Meccano, uh, but but the working in of villains from other series like the Super Adaptoid or Red Raven, right? We see these characters kind of pop up all over the place. And it's, it's fascinating to remind us that the X-Men are part of the wider universe which in the books we don't often see explored. Uh, Upcoming right after this podcast, they're doing the Avengers, Eternals, X-Men storyline. So we get those mixes sometimes, but quite often they're kind of contained on the side. Um, What are your thoughts on that? The kind of self-containment of the X-Men as their own little pocket universe in the wider Marvel system? I mean, they've never been entirely that. There's
1: always been the intersection of what they do with what other characters do. The difference is, uh, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, the X-Men, at least from like 1976 onward, they're not really superheroes in the same sense that most of the other Marvel characters are superheroes. They are not interested in like hero villain conflicts they are interested in the mutant community and threats to it externally and internally and that makes it a little hard for them to be part of that bigger picture at the same time they do live in the same world and you keep seeing overlaps between them. like there's uh i, I want to say like uh uncanny 123 like when the uh, claremont burn issues like First three pages. That's a Claremont Burn Spider Man story. Like it starts off as a Spider Man story, and then the X Men come into it. Uh, and actually, right now, also we're seeing the X Men world and the Spider Man world kind of merging. I don't know if uh you read that free comic book day thing that came out last week. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Oh God, no. Oh. What? So, so <laughs> uh,
1: do you want do you want me to spoilerize this? I can well, spoilerize this it. won't be out for a few weeks. Spoilers are just okay. Fine. Yeah, go for uh, it, yeah. So there's actually two things that happened. One of them is that the new place that Moira McTaggart has turned up is in Mary Jane Watson's house um, about to like steal her form and go as her to the hellfire gala. Uh, wow! Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the other one is in the Spider-Man uh, the Spider-Man free comic book day issue. Like, they're in New York, and there's a mailbox attacking them, and it is all very inferno. It is all very like late eighties, and uh, the final page is we see that the two people are behind it. One of them is Chasm, who's the Ben Riley new form, and the other one is the Goblin Queen. It is Maddie,
0: Madeline Pryor,
3: yeah, Madeline Pryor back wow. in the mix. I'm so gagged over the Moira Jane Watson. What? Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Moira Jane MJ. Jeez.
3: Oh. Yeah. Moira, honey. I'm a big Moira
2: fan, despite what everyone else thinks and says. I might not have read far enough yet, but. Uh, uh,
3: big Corey,
0: fan. Corey, I like I keep, her for
3: what she does. Corey, I keep telling <laughs> you to read
0: Hellions. I know you haven't yet, but Wells, yes. the writer of Hellions, is now the writer. Hellions of Spider-Man. is the
3: greatest. Hellions yes. is the That's greatest. next on the list.
2: I'm getting through Spider Verse. Uh, the first full read-through. Part. You're going laugh.
0: to <laughs> uh Douglas, another just kind of random uh, off-the-wall question just based on my podcast theme. What are your thoughts on 60s Magneto and uh, the villain he becomes under Claremont later? How do you reconcile the two? Um, I
1: reconcile 60s, Claremont, 60s Magneto with Lager Magneto by the fact that between those two, he gets de-aged. He gets turned back into a toddler and he gets to grow up again that's going to change a person
3: not just a toddler a toddler whose dna was toyed with by none other than moira mctaggart
1: exactly yeah so So there's there's some stuff going on there um that that also lets me explain away his age and stuff like that you you think that the the aging is also going to mess with your aging process yes um so we can put it all down to those issues of defenders where uh Magneto shows up, and not a lot else happens. And then, uh, and then Moira messes with his DNA, yeah, <laughs> uh, which like then pays off in like the ninety-one X-Men number one, and pays off extra in Hoxpox. Hmm.
0: Hmm. I think. Uh. I think we're gonna see that brought back up. Um. Uh. Doug. I. I, I oh my goodness! I said it. Douglas. Uh, I asked. Uh, <laughs> oh no. I asked a bit ago. Just uh, random moment of trivia and I'll and I'll ask this of Corey and Arturo first if you can think of anything what's just your favorite random 60s X-Men fact uh or something that just baffles you uh one of my favorites that I share on the podcast sometimes uh and this is retroactive continuity but time traveling angel goes to the future gets fire wings gets them cut off then gets mimic wings grafted onto his back then goes back to the 60s and meets the mimic who then adapts his own wings off of angel's back that's one of my
3: favorites <laughs> I mean, it's going to be impossible to top that I, I got nothing <laughs> that, that's, that's very much like the time
1: that Betsy Ross Stole the idea for the American flag design From Captain America's costume <laughs>
0: yes. yes, yes, amazing
2: and She was inspired by <laughs> I love that uh, um, So, I, gosh that whole, that whole, like, between book four or five Or five and six Where that time travel thing actually happened was the first thing that came to my mind but uh uh the other thing oh god i just had it and then i lost it favorite 60s random fact oh man
3: i got one well i don't know if it's a random fact (laughs) i I don't know if it's a random fact but i just love the the recurring trope of charles xavier is dead and charles is faking his death again (laughs) or like he's just like removed in today's issue we you know spoiler but we're we're, we're remembering the great charles xavier who is dead uh, apparently and he's not oh the changeling uh, i got oh, the changeling it. of it all
2: <laughs> i got it it's uh it uh, mine was the the uh the juggernaut ep- or not episode uh the juggernaut uh, uh book whenever he came back someone uh, on the podcast actually made the point about how at this point he's really he's not He's not a villain. He's not some hardened criminal. He got, he got left under the rock by his brother. He's just coming back home.
3: With his boyfriend? Yeah, that would
2: be, yeah. (laughs) I love all of that so much. Uh, But yeah, that's my favorite thing. Uh, It could be my, uh, my, um, actually, Juggernaut didn't start out as a villain. He just got done wrong and they kept doing him wrong.
0: (laughs) Anthony Oliveira says that first appearance, he's just trying to go home, man. (laughs) <laughs> nobody who likes dazzler that much can be all
3: bad <laughs> or straight or all that straight yeah <laughs> um is there any
0: facts that pop up in your brain uh i know that's uh, so open-ended uh, yeah, it, as, it is it is yeah uh
1: i'm thinking there. there's actually another uh connection uh to the greater marvel universe it's actually straight from the juggernaut his jewel like that is a Dr. Strange thing. Like mm-hmm. that is, there
0: is the connection right there. The Crimson bends of Citorak. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause he, that's yeah. Yeah. I remember that now.
0: Uh, Douglas, who are your X-Men, your favorite characters, the ones you attach with and connect with, uh, that just mean the most to you? Uh, well, obviously, well, the, the, the former,
1: the former no girl who is now cerebella uh, no, no girl was always my fave. Martha uh, and, Johansson, what a bizarre
0: pick. Why? Uh,
1: brain in the jar. Who doesn't like a good brain in the jar? <laughs>
2: um,
1: and you know, uh now Cerebella actually um there is that uh, character in at the beginning of Powers of Ten who looks very, very much like a Chimera. It's part Martha. So that's in in her cerebellum form. Yeah. Um always like her. Uh always liked Kitty. Um, I mean, I feel like a lot of the time, point of identification for, like, cishet white dudes was supposed to be Cyclops, but I never felt that connection to Cyclops. Um, yeah, I, I, so here's an interesting thing. Um, do you know Stephanie Burt, the poet? I know Um, of her. Yeah, she's, she's the poet and world-class x-men fanatic like that that is her thing she wrote an entire chapbook of uh poems about the x-men she she is an old and dear friend of mine and when i was working on the book she was like so douglas like who who are the x-men that that you really identify with i was like i identify identify mm-hmm.
2: uh, like that
1: that is just never really been a way that I read these stories, which is weird, because it is a really important way of reading these stories for a whole lot of people. Um, And that is sort of how I started thinking about how that's a really important way of reading them and one that I had somehow never gotten. So who are my X-Men? I don't know that I particularly have them. I'm kind of more interested in that system than in the particular characters.
0: I love that you said Martha Johansson. That makes yes. me so happy. I love yes. hearing these uh, underused characters uh, get yes. some airtime. Um, Corey and I are both parents as well, and I think we have both had the experience of introducing the uh, the X-Men to our children. Uh, I have uh, one son and one non-binary child, and my my 10-year-old, the second one, uh, is fascinated. Every time I'm prepping for the podcast, they're looking over my shoulder asking questions. Why does Toad look so ridiculous? He was looking over my shoulder just on this issue today. Um, and it's been so fun to kind of bring uh, bring that to them as a parent, sharing this love of something that they then grow to uh, love. Corey, anything you wanted to say about that? And the Douglas, I wanted to ask you, sure. who, who are your son's characters? Who, who are his favorites?
2: I uh it's funny that you bring that up because that's one of the things I definitely wanted to mention um so I listened to your book Douglas uh, I didn't read it with my eyes and I was quite literally sobbing there towards the end when you were talking about your time with your son and I'm going to start now if I'm not careful because I've had somewhat of a similar somewhat of a similar you know experience even if it might be piecemeal between all three of my boys uh but it was was really incredible, and i i appreciated I appreciated the fact that you shared it. Uh, first of all, I think look, I look into someone's personal life is not normally something you get, especially you know in, in a work like that. But um, yeah, I appreciated you taking the time and like quite a bit of time actually to explain as you guys' journey, and uh, I absolutely loved <clears> that. That he's the one that sort of inspired your whole this whole thing, anyways. In this book is uh, the book itself as a whole has been a really, really fantastic like introduction into the world, and it's a way to it's a way for me. I have I have felt smarter after showing my kids comics and quoting things from your book, uh, things that I might not have read back in the eighties, but I know because because you said it uh so yeah that's something you you you're helping me bond with my kids uh and that's a oh. valuable so i appreciate it
3: although i am childless i am an <laughs> uncle a proud uncle a deal and i'm the uncle that like god help me my nephews are, turned out to be a little more jocks than i had hoped <laughs> but certainly when they were like much smaller and even till now like If they have questions about superheroes, they always come to me like they know not to talk to me about like the Miami Heat. I don't know. much, (laughs) But when it comes to heroes, I'm like I'm like the go to and uh, seeing characters and these stories and and even toys or whatever through the eyes of the of kids is like, I think, what helps you reconnect with it as as an adult.
0: Uh, Archer, I was going to say three of us are dads, but you're a daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Douglas, who are your son's favorites? Who are his characters? So
1: his favorites, like, I don't think he's ever, like, particularly glommed onto the X-Men as characters. Like, his character, he loves the villains. He loves Dr. Octopus. He loves Dr. Doom. Uh, Like, his favorite series ever is Superior Spider-Man with Thunderbolts not far behind that. Uh, Like, he, he likes, he's like, bring on the bad guys.
3: Uh, Child after my own heart. Yeah, yeah your son uh, and I would be good friends. Those are two of my all-time
0: favorites. Uh,
2: uh, Seems like a no-nonsense kid. <laughs> uh,
3: my, my own podcast
1: is a Doctor Doom podcast, and uh, that it's a little inspired by like his his affection for. I was like, okay, we're gonna talk. Uh, well, somebody asked me recently, like, who's your favorite Marvel hero and who's your favorite Marvel villain? I was like, okay, my favorite Marvel hero is Doctor Doom, and my favorite Marvel villain is Emma Frost um who is technically a hero but just has a vicious streak that is never ever going to leave her (laughs)
0: there, <laughs> um, Douglas, my last question for you before we shift focus, uh, when I got to hear you do that lecture, uh, at the college, you shared a, I, I believe it was a, I don't know if it's on YouTube or not, but you shared a song that you had put together of all the X-Men titles, uh, set to uh, yes. music. Is that available? Can we share that with people? Yeah. Um, it was
1: amazing. There's, there's a Vimeo link to it. I can, I can find that and set, send that to you. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um. I will uh, I will find it, and I will put it in the chat for you.
0: I would love that. Or send it to me in an email. Uh, if, okay. if I have your permission to share it with our Absolutely. listeners. Absolutely. I, it, it's so <laughs> great. It's, it's, it's literally every, uh, every X-Men title put to music. It's wonderful. It's I mean, just, not every, every X-Men title, but, but it is every X-Men title that would fit into the metrical <laughs> and rhyme scheme of I'm the very, Model of Modern Major General. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, we'll also be posting some links to uh, to all of the Marvels and letting people know where to find this incredible book. It really is wonderful. There's a reverence for the Marvel Universe there that is just, uh, just epic. Uh, what an honor to uh, hear some of your method and to just nerd out with you. Um, with that, let's shift focus into uh, X-Men number 45. Uh, as we look at the cover of this book, what are some of your thoughts? I am super impressed. With the optic blast kind of taking center stage here, um, we recently had the issue that kind of told us how Cyclops's optic blasts work, uh, and they're they're starting to follow the rules now <laughs> instead of being all crazy. And, <laughs> uh, and and Quicksilver looks like Peter Pan. <laughs> what are some of your thoughts on the cover of this book? Uh, I thought it was. I thought it was really
2: interesting the way they tried to draw Quicksilver's speed, and this may just be kind of the style of this particular artist, but uh, he—they just put like put a little whoosh around him, so it almost looks like a bubble. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm I'm a little bit more partial to the to the multiple characters around the panel to show somebody moving around really fast. But it, yeah, that's what I, that was my first thought—the big swoops around him and his fist.
1: Yeah, that's definitely, it's John Buscema drawing the figures, like nobody else draws figures or faces like that. And there is always the question of how are you going to draw super speed? How are you going to represent something moving faster than the eye can see? And like the tradition for that in comics is it's the Flash, which Carmine Infantino kind of set the standard for in, in the 50s. And Don Heck, who drew most of this issue, went on to draw the Flash for a while in the 70s and the 80s. And you you need to communicate somehow visually without words. This guy is hella fast.
3: Gets that across? Well, and beyond beyond the like the action of the shot, it's worth mentioning that this is the X Men featuring the senses shattering Cyclops. Like this feels like it's like a Cyclops one shot. You know, like it's it's a. It feels like it's it's centered on him, which is uh, a change of pace. Um, I'm wondering where Quicksilver's other leg is, but other than that, other than I'll allow it, I'll allow it. Yeah, this this was the period when
1: uh, when X Men was selling pretty badly, and they were trying to find a new direction for it. So you know, the death of Professor X, and then there's the Angel special, and so they were going through like. Okay, which of these or, is the one that sells? Well, the one means- that says "The
0: Power of Magneto." Yeah, it's like yeah, these yeah. giant word balloons. On yeah, the- yeah.
1: Like, what's what's the angle the kids are picking up? And, and again,
3: like- again, Cyclops's design is just money. I mean, it's just it's simple. You get it. It's it's a it's a gift and a curse. It's like it's got it all. And I think it needs a couple
1: little sprigs of flowers at the ears. <laughs>
3: Captain. I he
2: I know he's very he's huge to be a teenager. This this kid is jacked.
0: So let's uh, let's kind of jump into the issue a little bit. Corey, are you willing to take the first five pages a little bit? Uh, tell us a little bit about what happens, and we'll talk about it. Now let me let me just remind our listeners: we had three issues of the Avengers, and then three issues of the X Men prior to this that are all part of the same Magneto, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch storyline. Uh, and then this continues into Avengers number 53, which we'll be covering in the next podcast. So this is kind of a long form story for the 60s, both a crossover and multi issues on each side. Uh, so, yeah, Corey, will you take the first five pages for us?
2: Yes, I will. So um, we start out on to Cyclops, of course, uh, since this is his 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 book or his story for the most part. He's uh, he is sitting in his cell thinking, oh, my God, Angel is not going to make it back in time. The 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 impetus falls on me. It's going to I'm going to have to be the one to save everybody. Uh, So he needs to figure out a way to get out of this trap that he's been put in. And it's scientifically clever uh, what he does. He decides that he's going to. So his little trap, because no one here can see this or just in case his handcuffs of sorts are this thing that's covering his visor. And I'm assuming it's made of like really dense lead or metal or something like that. But his whole plan is to first, he's got to break through his visor that is made not to be broken through. Uh, and then once he's broken through his visor, he can break through his, uh, this this other band that's covering him. Uh, so once he does that, his handcuffs or the equivalent are super easy. Uh, from there, he's just he's running around. He does his he does his big and he He's free, and now he's angry. And this, there's a lot of the big thing I took from uh, from these first few pages is is creating urgency, uh, quite a bit of urgency, which is not something that the books usually do. They're usually kind of you know, he was he was very urgently running through running through looking for the rest of the x-men trying to find out if who he can grab to help him uh face
0: uh face the doom i feel Not like doom. they've been I, the I feel like they've been like tied up for hours at this point man like
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i love I, my favorite thing about the book itself is the castle or this I'm, I'm a i'm a dungeons and Dragons guy at heart forever and this castle and the color and all of it are Wonderful! I, I absolutely love it. I want to run around in here. Uh, but he comes across. He comes across genie, Marvel Girl. She's passed out. Uh, the funny thing about this is he he doesn't he doesn't help her. He he decides. You know what? She's sleeping. I'm gonna I'm gonna run and look for the boys. They're gonna they're gonna be much more help to me. <laughs> uh, once I think this might be. Yeah, this is my last page here. Uh, while he's doing all of his running, urgent running around, he is spotted by none other than Magneto's most faithful servant, the Toad, who, uh, who runs and snitches, of course. And then we get this, uh, this wonderful moment that takes almost an entire page for Cyclops to get through a door that's closing. And for us to explain how he got through the door that was closing, how it was closing, and then he blasted it so it wasn't closing anymore so he could go through and then it started closing again so he blasted it again and it ended up closing and then, <laughs> and then whoop, through. I, I just
3: squeezed through
2: <laughs> but uh yeah those are my pages cyclops running around uh looking for some men to help him <laughs>
0: So uh, on page five, we get a reminder that Angel has been off and had this little adventure with Red Raven and he's rushing to get the Avengers. Uh, We'll talk more about the Avengers in a minute. What are your thoughts on these first four pages? Besides the fact that Cyclops, uh, I mean, consent is important, but he looks pretty good (laughs) in (laughs) Bondage. If you're you're into that.
1: So so first of all, like putting a lead shield around him, like... the fact that it was taking him that much effort made me worry that he was about to pull a black bolt on himself. Oh, Uh, sure, yeah. Yeah. uh, But also like, lead is not really going to stop those eye beams right? I wouldn't think so. Yeah. No, it's like Ruby quartz. No, lead, lead is, lead is like Superman and X-ray vision. That's the other vision, vision power. It's the other eye power. doesn't, doesn't, does it ever actually say
2: lead or what it, what it might be in the prior fire book
1: uh no it's a uh, first page uh, unless i can concentrate the full force of my optic blast on a tiny portion of the lead shield around my eyes <laughs> yeah
0: there's yeah, i, think I, I think mean the this is, love...
2: that is how heavy it probably is like why isn't he what, hanging his head like this it's gotta be a pretty heavy piece of lead oh
1: well, so
0: true um this is like I... call, kind of still developing his powers as well right he's had the chance to recharge a little bit he's yeah. he went from weakness uh, and he's not necessarily used to using his powers this way. He's kind of just forcing its way through. I think that image on page two, that three part image of him, or I guess four part image of him blasting through the shield is really fucking cool
3: actually. I think it's yeah. I think it's really impressive. Well, my, and it's a I think it's my favorite Cyclops
0: movie. moment in the book so far, if I'm honest.
3: It's a cool reminder visually that it's coming from both his eyes. Cause like usually you just see the visor, but like this is like showing each each of his eyeballs basically. Uh, So I should mention, we we talked about this a little bit before, but
1: this five page sequence, so this issue was reprinted twice in the 1970s, and the second time it was reprinted, this five page sequence was an eight page sequence. Uh, The first time it was reprinted was in X-Men number 93, the last issue before the relaunch with the new team. and what it said at the time was you know this this issue uh we'll see the the conclusion to this story reprinted in giant size x-men number one coming soon it was not it was not reprinted there ah. the, the second time it was reprinted was in 1977-78 in a series called marvel triple action which was mostly an avengers reprint title right and marvel triple action at that point had 18 pages an issue so they usually like cut two pages out of an adventure story but this—it's lead story. It's fifteen pages, so Selby Summit actually drew three new pages of recap that went into uh, between the first and second pages of this story, like Angel, going, Angel
0: fighting Red Raven, the Avengers fighting Grim Reaper.
1: Yeah, uh, all that just to kind of like make it come up to the right number of pages, uh, <laughs> and kind of extending Scott's agony a
0: little longer. <laughs> Well, he does
2: that pretty good on his own.
0: That's true. (laughs) There's the mention of Cyclops run by Jean cell. that, like, uh, she's unconscious, probably, so there's no way she can (laughs) use the telepathic power she inherited from Professor X, which is kind of how they believed it to happen, based on Professor X's living will. Uh, He said, I passed my telepathic powers on to Jean which is something he also claimed to do for the changeling later. But really Gene was telepathic the whole time. And frankly, she's an Omega mutant. So they're going to learn more about her powers over time.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a weird power play. <laughs> and, and it
3: that. was hilarious to me though, just like the one panel of Jean and she's asleep. <laughs> like it's just well, a recurring even... thing for her that it's, you know, it's kind of like you got to laugh when it happens, you know, it's like, Oh, take a shot. Jean passed out. Jean fainted.
1: And uh, Scott taking five panels to get through uh, a closing door. This is the downside (laughs) to the Marvel method, to the plot art script method, because you can say like, you know, there's a door that's closing and Scott dives through it at, at the last minute. That's something that's really hard to show in one panel or two panels. That's something that you actually, if you're an artist, you have to devote some serious real estate to. And then if you're writing for Marvel in 1968, you need to fill up those panels with a whole lot of talk.
3: Mm -hmm. It's Uh, always so interesting, like just looking at how the medium has changed so much. Like that's always fascinating to me about the 60s stuff is how much it feels like they were getting paid by the word or whatever, by the letter, (laughs) right? Like you gotta gotta pack it in there. And just like at some point when, when things started changing and they were like, No, we can have like three pages without dialogue and still convey a message and a story and then get into other stuff. Like, it's just, it's always very interesting to see that and like, look at it as an artifact. When I've taught comics writing, I have my students always,
1: always, when they write a script, they have to do thumbnail layouts. They have to just do a stick figure version of it because so often comics writers who do not draw will not realize That something can't be represented in a single image or can't even be represented in a few images and how are you going to show it? You're just going to have to come up with something else where one image can tell you the whole story.
0: The uh, the pacing of this issue is not quite so frenetic as the last few have been. Angel escaping took five pages, right, before he even runs into Red Raven, and then they're rush, rush, rush through the issue. Uh, I, I think these five pages is, are, are a good lead-in, and I love seeing Cyclops get some solo action. I think it's really fantastic.
3: Um, Arturo, take us through the next five pages, if you would. The next five pages are the best because now we change, (laughs) we we shift gears and we start looking at what's going on with, with the villains in, in Magneto's lair. And, you know, in our first scene, we have Cyclops. He's looking for Toad. He had to make a decision, which corridor to go down. And it seems like he made the wrong decision because he's going down Quicksilver's area. Um, And then we threw a little bit of exposition. We learn from Quicksilver that there are little fissures in the brotherhood of evil mutants they're they're not all friends right he thinks that that's that toad is coming to spy on him and scurry to tell magneto and you know curry favor with magneto so right out of the gate that's like an interesting just like characterization of like life at the brotherhood sucks um Pietro decides that he wants to try to talk to Cyclops and try to reason with him. Uh, he jumps with his super speed in front of Cyclops and tells him to halt. Scott Summers does not take too lightly to that and begins <laughs> blasting him right away. I mean, uh, what did he
2: expect? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. And and I per and I don't particularly wait go for parlays with traitors to the human race. So like right out of the gate um cyclops is not having it we change scenes over to magneto and toad has made his way to magneto to to give him the news that cyclops has gotten away and magneto Mm -hmm. (laughs) magneto is livid he's like you imbecile your job was to keep him there so instead of rushing to go contain cyclops magneto takes some time to Unleashes magnetic fury on the snivelling toad and it's a (laughs) lot. It's like really heavy-handed. This is like Magneto's like skeletor era. Like he was just like evil. (laughs) Yeah, it's very that. Like does does anyone have any like good theories
1: about why the toad is so faithful to Magneto? I mean, right up to now where you know he
0: actually like we saw him go into the pit as a favor to Magneto just a couple months ago. Yeah. Well, but we're about to see Toad turn against Magneto for the first time as well, uh, which happens in the next issue. Spoilers, we'll get there. I, I recently read uh, uh, Douglas. once in a while. I put a character on trial uh, and we do a long focused episode. We just did one on the blob. The next one is Toad. So I just read his whole chronology front to back. And that's one of the theories we talk about. There's a desperation on his part to belong. We do have an origin story added much later in X-Men Forever where we see Magneto go uh, save Toad from um human mob in Manchester, England. Right, right, right. Uh, and there's a loyalty on his part, even though Magneto quickly dresses him as a court jester right afterwards and starts smacking him around. There seems to be just a need for him to belong. He sees this man as overwhelmingly powerful and and strong. I'll pull up a quote for you uh as we're as we're talking here, uh that that helped me uh, outline that a little bit. Um, as I'm doing that, Arturo, did you want to finish that section?
3: Yeah. So uh Switch back over to Quicksilver and and Cyclops. And uh this I found fascinating because again, this is what 1962, four, I'm not sure what year
0: we're in. And it resonates
3: and it resonates with with what's going on right now. Uh Pietro, Cyclops says, all right, I'm listening. And Pietro says, since the very first mutant appeared on Earth, normal men have persecuted us, hunted us, and hounded us. Now, at last, Magneto has given us a chance to leave all that turmoil behind. He proposes to set up a sanctuary, a separate country for mutants. Like... Is right there, like before Genosha, before everything like this is, you know, like pull out the Magneto was right T-shirts, right? I mean, well, and
0: just before this, in Avengers, Magneto stormed the United Nations and demanded their own country, partially in an effort to get uh, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch back on his side. But that's kind of the first evidence we see of him really demanding this space. And Toad really believes in this concept, it seems, as does Quicksilver at this point.
3: Yep. Uh and it's and it's a great sales pitch. I mean, I would have signed up, honestly. Uh Cyclops isn't having it. Uh, you know, he's been raised by Charles Xavier essentially, and he's been brainwashed, <laughs> yeah. Literally brainwashed, gaslit within an inch of his life. Like, yeah, he's not he's not willing to hear anything out, and uh and they come to fisticuffs. <laughs> I wasn't expecting the word fisticuffs.
2: Like I would I wonder if there's a moment later on where Cyclops is, we're, were they're in Krakoa and Cyclops is like, Yeah man, I remember Magneto had this idea first, and I was like,
3: No. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when I say fisticuffs, I'm talking about the panel where Quicksilver punches Cyclops. And God bless him, the artist was going for like a thing with like perspective, but it really looks like Quicksilver's <laughs> kind of doing a Mr. Fantastic, you know. Or, or uh, Miss Marvel-esque yeah. uh, fist inflation kind of situation.
0: That's
2: what I thought of when I saw it.
0: So uh, <clears throat> uh, I just pulled this page up. This is from X-Men Unlimited number two. It's the famous Fabian a story where Adrian Eiscault is going back and trying to figure out who the hell Magneto is. Uh, this guy goes to Toad, who at the time is leading the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. This is Toad's like savage killer era when he's got the resin in his hands. Yeah. Uh, and he, he pays Toad uh, for information. Um, and uh, let me read just a couple of clips from this interview uh, that Sculpt does with the Toad to kind of answer your question. Um, it's going to take me just a second. Um, so he's playing this tape, Ice Iskalt is. Uh, oh yes, of course I was frightened of him, Mr. Iskall. Did he hit you, Mr. Toynbee? Did he abuse you? Oh, constantly, constantly. So why did you stay with him for so long? Toad says, I was younger then. You have to understand he had a way of keeping you under his control. And not just through the threat of physical punishment either. How else? Through sheer force of will, Mr. Iskall. He believed so strongly in himself and his goals and his methods that no matter how ludicrous some of them sounded, you actually believed he would accomplish them. How did Hitler rally his country around him? Through the incredible allure of his confidence. Magneto was much the same way in that regard. For all his bluster, for all his ill-tempered treatment of myself and my comrades, we stayed with him because he made us believe what what he strongly believed himself, that he was superior to us all. And by staying with him, we were ensuring our place alongside greatness. And for as much as I hate him, to this day, I still believe he may have been right. So we're going to get into Toad's character during like at the trial, but tell me tell me some of your thoughts on that little uh, interview or that speech. Uh,
1: number one, creepy as heck. Um, you know, the, but also like this is what we see wooing over Fabian Cortez much later, um, and uh, you know how he is able to continue to command authority. Over time, despite not being the most reliable boss.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, having been, and I'm going to make this super serious for a second. We'll get into this in the Toad Trial again. Having been a teenager who grew up with an abusive stepfather, my my stepfather had a way of kind of making us feel like the abuse was our fault. He would phrase it <laughs> in such a way or control us in such a way that we felt like we deserved it, that we that we were responsible for it. And there's a very asshole kind of. the abuser vibe that Magneto gives. He's literally issue after issue back then, smacking him oh, yeah. around, calling him names and saying, you deserve <laughs> this until Toad finally stands Why up. Why do you make me do this to you? <laughs> right, and right after the storyline when, to- when Toad abandons Magneto, he stays away from Magneto for decades until the trial of Magneto story that you're referencing, in which we have him back in Magneto's influence on Krakoa, Magneto now being in charge of the government at this point. Magneto gets his country, the one he always promised, and Toad is part of it. Um, in that yes. same, well, in that same X Men Unlimited issue I just referenced, Magneto's off in Avalon, and Exodus comes down and says, "I'm here to recruit the worthy for Magneto." But Toad, you're not allowed. You're not. You're not worthy. You're not welcome here. Uh, I mean, there's some shit in this relationship. Uh, <laughs> Doug, do you have any additional thoughts on the Toad Magneto dynamic?
1: Yeah, um, th- being being the favored Toady is something about you know that's something that we see in Exodus too. Like, like that seems Exodus and Toad like that is. Exodus saying, I've taken your place. I'm doing I've got your
0: gig. He loves me now, not you, me. The uh, the dynamic here in this issue with Cyclops versus Quicksilver too is uh, Xavier's dead supposedly and Cyclops is trying so hard to keep his dream alive and Quicksilver is not only Magneto's child but he's the Cyclops of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He's the golden child. The two of them fighting has uh, more poignancy I think than we often realize uh, when we're looking at this battle. Their powers are very different but they both look great in their costumes and it's kind of a cool fight I think.
3: They do. They do. It's great
0: that
2: Cyclops can hold his own. I yeah. think it's very impressive.
3: Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate the art so much, just like the flat colors. There's just such a beauty to it. And reading it on unlimited lets you really appreciate each panel. Like as you're going through it, it feels yes. more immersive. I love it. I love it. The it's whole page. The whole yeah, the whole experience.
1: So, so let's talk a little bit about the the art in this fight. Um, uh, because the two artists who are working together, like Don Heck doing layouts and Werner Roth doing full pencils, are a strange combination. They were both affiliated with X-Men for a while, Werner Roth more than Don Heck. Right. Uh Werner Roth had a background in romance comics. Uh he had that's what he did before, that's what he did after. And he was good with human figures, he was pretty good with anatomy, that giant fist notwithstanding. Um he was good at character acting but he really couldn't draw a particularly dynamic layout most of the time like that was not that was not his forte don heck had come from adventure comics and, and horror comics and don heck is often the sort of like oh yeah that dude when people talk about 60s marvel artists and don heck was actually an amazing artist in the tradition of you know, Alex Raymond type and Milton Kniff type adventure strip artists and horror artists. He'd done a series called Horrific back in the 50s, where the front cover of each issue was just an extreme close up of somebody's face in terror. Um, <laughs> amazing. And he was incredibly good at that. He was incredibly good at doing dynamic looking things, not so much necessarily the anatomy stuff, but like he could keep a page really lively in a way that was his own and was not sub-Steve Ditko or sub-Jack Kirby. Um, he was also very, very fast when he had to be and could knock out something incredibly quickly. And that's what he got used for for a lot of his career, because like, if there's a deadline it has to be met, you give it to Donnie and Donnie can do it. And it's not going to look beautiful, but it's going to get done by deadline. Um, <laughs> and so the idea here was to have Don Heck do the layouts to put a little oomph into them, because Kirby was busy with all his other stuff now and couldn't uh, couldn't be bothered with X Men anymore, and then to get it kind of more fleshed out by Werner Roth doing the full pencils and John Tartaglione inking, um, and sometimes it works really well and sometimes it's it goes really really static. Like there's that uh, you know, that panel that we see on page twelve of uh, the Toad sort of crouching down and looking at the video monitors and it's sort of fully rendered in this very cartoony kind of way. That's very, very different from the crazy action stuff where you can see hex hand before that. And the first couple of pages of this, like the fight scene, it's really, like, heck was not an artist who cared a lot about panel to panel continuity. Um, you can't really see how Each image of this fight goes to the next one, but they're all real dynamic looking, they're all really action-packed and the dynamic of the fight that Gary Friedrich is filling in is that Quicksilver is trying to distract him by talking at him and arguing at him and making his point at him. And Scott is just trying to make the fight happen on a physical level, which he's not quite fast enough for. he can be really distracted but he keeps missing he keeps not quite connecting while quicksilver has time to like tear some graphite packing from the (laughs) wall-sized computer that is in this headquarters and in the meantime we get video monitors because this is the period where we're starting to see video monitors showing up in just about every comic marvel is publishing this is how it's remote viewing it's really useful as a kind of picture-in-picture device to have two different sources of uh, visual interest in each panel and it's also where the technology of fighting of combat is turning from just physical weaponry into surveillance and this is something that we see much more in iron man stories around this period we're starting to see a lot more video monitors turning up and eventually iron man becomes a comic about warfare being conducted through information technology and surveillance can't quite be yet but that's that's the way the technology is going so we cut away to magneto and the toad and now we complete the original brotherhood of evil mutants with the recently head injured wanda wandering in and being like oh hey magneto what's up oh oh yeah that's that's my brother that's my brother on the screen and He's fighting with one of the X-Men. Didn't you think about dating Cyclops at some point, Wanda? One <laughs> of the X-Men? Wow. Just really, really fallen in your estimation. Um, and I mean, she just got hit with a bullet in the head. She, she, did, she did. And she's like, the X-Men looks so grim, so determined. The nameless X-Man looks so grim, so determined. And oh, uh, yeah. Um, Magneto kind of brushes her aside, you know, like, you need not worry. Magneto is in complete control and is speaking in the third person again. Um, And then uh, he thinks there will be no place for weaklings in the kingdom of Magneto, still in the third person. Third person speech is really, really the mark of a bad person. Um, So Mm -hmm. we go via the video screen again as as real useful segue, like Don Heck is thinking about this stuff. Um, The segue is that through like through the video screen we see the fight continuing to go on and now uh for some reason Cyclops is temporarily blinded and can't really see what he's doing well that's why he's aiming so badly um and of course like it's not it's not a fair fight Quicksilver is so 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 much faster than him he's just kind of shooting off beams, wherever they can go beams sometimes destroy the thing they hit. And they sometimes ricochet off the thing they hit. I
2: never really
1: understood the mechanism. You understand the mechanism behind this Corey? explain the mechanism behind this.
2: Well, there is no explanation, or let's say that I gave it during the other period and I just can't give it again. No, I was, it's just, uh, I was commenting on the inconsistency. <laughs>
3: I just, uh, shout out to Pepe Laraz in like the current run of X-Men. Uh, I'm not sure what issue number, it was a couple of issues back, but one of the coolest uses of Cyclops's laser beam or, or optic blast. He shoots at a traffic signal and from the traffic signal, it ricochets in like a million directions and he takes out a bunch of targets. Yeah. One of the most Beautiful splash pages. And I can't explain <laughs> the science and physics of how that all worked, but goddamn, it was the most gorgeous page I've mm-hmm. seen all year.
2: I'd like to think that at this point in time, like not at six, not at teenager Scott time, but at, you know, how adults got time now, he's developed such like precise control over these things. Like I would imagine like he could even uh, change the force at which part of it goes and not the other part, or like you've got some sort of. Yeah, I I wouldn't the intricate control as an adult I can buy. It, if it happened now I would be a little bit questionable, but yeah, I feel like that's just something that just keeps getting he can just keep making more and more precise the more he does it and he figures it out.
1: I assume it's connected to his real power which is self-repression. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's and there's certainly like, a combination.
1: Uh, yeah. no, th- this like uh, Scott Summers is the guy who managed to imprison the void through the power of being repressed. He was like, nobody will ever open that door.
0: We're going to do a Cyclops-focused episode (laughs) in the near future, but there's there's something about the Professor X and Magneto of it all, the parallels of these two men, which we always come back to in these comics. Magneto saved Quicksilver and his sister from this mob and then used that as leverage to keep them under his power over and over and over, and now he's manipulating them again. Professor X, we don't know how much he's using his telepathy, but he saves, quote unquote, Cyclops from, uh, you know, Jack of Diamonds in those flashback stories. uh, And then immediately has Cyclops murder Jack of Diamonds and then says, you're my first X-Man. We had to do this. Uh, We're going to see in these last five pages how he then sends Cyclops uh, in his second mission to go complete a jailbreak and take another mutant forcibly to, to join them. Uh, there's a parallel between Xavier and Magneto that's uncomfortable when, uh, when you consider <laughs> these two men. I, I, I enjoyed this battle between Cyclops and Quicksilver, and the parallel of them back then is fascinating. In the Age of Apocalypse, we see uh, Xavier dies, Magneto takes over the X-Men, and Quicksilver becomes the Cyclops character. He becomes the, the mainstay, the general, the leader. Uh, there's, there's a parallel there that's just interesting, although they've had a very different trajectory in the comics.
3: Um. Uh. And, and Beast completes his natural arc Towards pure evil Yes, becoming the Dark <laughs> Beast itself. Oh my god, that new image Of
0: Craven the Hunter wearing the Beast Is crazy That preview is coming out Ooh.
3: Sick, uh, That not- Kessaris is sick
0: Yeah, it's amazing uh, uh, Douglas, how does the, on page 15 How does the issue, uh, or this story wrap up uh, So uh,
1: Scott manages to Beat Quicksilver through sheer luck just happens to fire a ricochet the right way to knock him out but not kill him like the the comics tradition of like the blow that can render you unconscious but not do you any permanent damage <laughs> that's uh, that's the thing that only happens in the 616 um every so he, mutant has a little <laughs> healing factor <laughs> yeah uh, so he he uh He shakes Quicksilver some and he's trying to wake him up when all of a sudden the Avengers show up uh, as uh, foreshadowed by an arrow that turned up a few pages earlier with an editorial like, hey, look, look, it's an arrow, it's an arrow, there's an arrow, we'll explain, there's an arrow, Hawkeye. Uh, So yeah, Hawkeye turns Uh, up with... Black Panther, who is then in his kind of half-cowl costume that didn't last terribly long, and Giant Man and the Wasp, and there's a blurb
0: saying, like, go read Avengers 53. uh, We'll get there there next time. I think, and I'd have to go do a deeper research. Douglas, correct me if you remember differently. I think this final page appearance of the Black Panther is the first time we see a person of color in an X-Men comic book. Huh. So I that's think that is possible. I don't know, but I, yeah, this, this continues into the Avengers where Black Panther has just been made one of the uh, Avengers team that literally just happened in Avengers number 52 when they fight Grim Reaper for the first time. Uh, he's such a great character. There's some problematic portrayals of the way they treat him, which we will talk about in our review of Avengers 53. But I think this is the first appearance of a person of color in the book. Uh, uh, and of course he later becomes Storm's husband uh, for a minute at least so there's some uh, X-Men parallels there too.
2: Yeah. I know I we do. had our, we had the Hispanic villain group or a couple of the Hispanic villains
0: or South America.
3: Mm-hmm. El Tigre, yeah. El Tigre, but, but, uh,
0: yeah. When I say person of color, I should be more specific. I think this is the first black character we've seen because uh, we, yeah, we have had some Hispanic characters uh, previous, Kukulkan and El Tigre were here.
3: For for better or worse, I was there for some of that, folks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was that
2: was when I first met Turo during that episode.
3: Yep, yep. I, always, me I too. always say I
2: meet the people that I listen to.
0: <laughs> um, let me cover the last five pages quickly. Uh, we have this ongoing thing where they're telling the X Men's origin stories. Uh, this is a story by Gary Friedrich, as well with pencils by George Tuska, inks by John Verporten, and uh, letters by Irving Watanabe. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about Irving in a future episode. Uh, This, this issue is called, or this story is called, And the Wind Cried Mary, I'm, excuse me, And the Mob Cried Vengeance, ha ha. Last issue we saw, Iceman, uh, Bobby Drake, take uh his judy out on a date to West Side Story which is the gayest little teenage gay story i've ever heard <laughs> uh they get attacked by a couple of bullies uh and i and bobby uses his ice powers to defend himself a mob then storms his house we meet his parents for the first time and bobby gets arrested and tossed into jail uh professor x has identified bobby likely because he's an omega mutant and wants him to be his first recruit despite the fact that he's 16 yeah, So uh, Cyclops broke into the jail to recruit Bobby. Uh, Bobby in this issue does not want to go with him, uh, but the mob is assembling outside. Scott is acting with imperativeness, likely driven into him by Xavier. And he attacks Iceman trying to, or attacks Bobby trying to force him to come with him. Blasts a hole in the wall. Bobby covers himself in ice for the first time, realizing, oh, this is like a side effect of my powers. When I feel threatened, I cover myself in ice. Uh, They have kind of a cool little brief battle out in the street where uh, Bobby covers Scott in ice. Uh, Scott punches Bobby in the jaw, and then Bobby tries to escape on a boat named Susie, which is somehow also (laughs) adorably gay. uh cyclops evades the mob which is literally firing guns at them so the anti-mutant hysteria of all this uh right after we see magneto fight for all this we're seeing a a flashback story where humans absolutely do not accept mutants and are literally trying to murder them for being in their town
2: Uh, These Um, these guys are on a prison break with, with, with and they're shooting they're shooting kinetic powers out i feel like this is there's not enough force in response,
0: yeah, yeah, maybe, but they were gonna kill they were gonna kill Bobby anyway, you know? like they were <laughs> gonna storm that cell and let him have it. Uh, they battle briefly on the boat again, uh, and then just as their powers are starting to give out, uh, a man with a gun stands over them. So this will be continued into our next uh, issue review. Uh, but as I cover that briefly, what are some of your thoughts on this origin story for Bobby? So here's a really interesting thing about it, which is that, It's drawn by George Tuska.
1: George Tuska had an incredibly long and varied career in comics. He started, I think, as early as 1940 or so, and his really big hit was drawing a lot of Crime Does Not Pay for many years. Like, his his thing was, like, he liked drawing dudes in jail. He liked drawing gangsters with hats on. And he gets to do a lot of that in this particular story. Like, big, threatening, like, guys with hats on suits and hats. That's, that was George Tuska's forte. Uh, and there are panels where it's just them, where it looks like an old panel from crime does not pay that he could have drawn like (laughs) 15, 20 years before this Uh, George Tuska continued to like, he did a lot of superhero comics. He did a long run on Iron Man and there's an interview with Stan Lee where he says like, yeah, George was amazing. And he just never got to cut loose as much as I wish that he would like he he was really good at doing super kinetic stuff and he always seemed to rein it in with the superhero things but when he's not drawing superheroes when he's drawing like tough people with uh, guns uh he's doing great interestingly one of the very last comics that george tusk ever did was uh a story with gambit in it it was a champion story like a flashback to the champions uh in the 70s when Tuska was drawing that series except gambit was also around at that time so it was eventually published as one of those from the marvel vault spe- specials and he must have drawn
0: it at some point when he was in his early 90s amazing so guess, wow amazing <laughs> i uh i consider myself a walking encyclopedia of random uh marvel stuff but douglas you are you are full of uh, just incredible trivia. I know the stories, you know the people, like you know the his, the, the history and the back the background stuff. It's really, really impressive. Uh, I'm startled uh, and, and so impressed. Um, uh, Corey and Arturo, any thoughts on this last five pages? What did you like or dislike? No, I was, I was
2: after the fact now, but I was actually gonna say that the art looks a little bit different in this one. And I really enjoy it a lot. Their whole, the whole battle, the way they're drawn, and like the distances between hand and feet are long, and it just it shows this. Yeah, I don't. I I really felt the the combat there. It was a. It wasn't as as much of a snicker when I read uh, that it was the, the greatest hand to hand combat ever seen by man because it did look pretty cool, and I liked how they they put two of them in one panel there. Uh,
3: two different movements or whatever in that same panel I thought that was really cool yeah I enjoyed the art and uh, and this was a good reminder that Iceman is officially the second X-Men which is you know something that I think people forget like you think of Cyclops as the first and you know that Jean Grey was the first X-woman like everybody knows that but like after Cyclops it's kind of like and then the rest of the boys but Yeah, it's kind of cool that he gets that, that place.
0: The, uh, the... mm, I'm trying to form my words here. When we're doing these origin stories, there's often a weird parallel between the main story and the backstory. In both of these issues, we see Cyclops in desperate circumstances being very impressive and doing whatever it takes to get the mission done. Uh, and, and we get that strange parallel of Cyclops to the rescue in both stories. And I don't think it was planned that way, but uh, but it comes across that way. He's, uh, he's great at this issue.
3: He's um, come a long way. I mean, like the, I think the first issue that I covered with you, anything of Cyclops was him just like hemming and hawing about his crush on Gene and all his like sexual repression. And it's just like he was obnoxious and like this it feels like now like he's finding his stride he's he's becoming like a an actually cool respectable character um douglas any final thoughts as we finish this issue review
0: no just a. a it's interesting to see gary friedrich
1: at this point uh, mm-hmm. gary gary friedrich is just such a strange anomalous writer in marvel's history uh he does he four was, issues of the X-Men and then he's gone. Four issues of the X-Men and he's gone. Uh, but he goes, he's a, he's the utility infielder for yeah. a number of years there. He is also the staff hippie. Uh, he, appa-
0: <laughs>
1: like he apparently went to Woodstock. Um, he at some point later wrote a, uh, like a romance story that takes place at Woodstock uh, in one of Marvel's romance comics. Uh, he also, a uh, wrote like the Nick Fury story where Nick Fury is assassinated at a country Joe and the fish concert. Um, hmm. they, so that there's like, he is the young hipster who was, who had been brought in by Roy Thomas and you can see Roy Thomas's hand in these plots and, and obviously because it's being coordinated with Avengers, but also the fact that Roy Thomas is not writing them himself. He's like, okay, Gary,
0: you can, X Men it's it's a little less important. You can take care of that. Um, as we are wrapping up, I'm always astounded by these uh, these issue reviews and how they just stand out to me. I will forever associate this issue with the four of us now and the conversation we had right. around it. It makes me look at it differently and just remember it indelibly. And we're uh, we're you know we're two thirds of the way through the X Men original stuff now. Uh, and, uh, and we've come a long way, we've covered a lot of ground, but we're kind of just seeing these characters take shape in a lot of ways. Now, there's a lot of nonsense that's about to happen <laughs> after this <but> It's great <laughs> 60s and crazy nonsense. Too. You're getting Starenko real soon. Uh-huh. Starenko, and then uh, Arnold Drake, and then we get Neil Adams right after. Uh, and some of our favorite characters, Havoc and Polaris and Sauron are all coming up. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff uh, in the near future. Um, as we are wrapping up today, where can people find each of you online if they'd like to engage with you? And knowing this episode is coming out right around June 8th, if I have my dates right, uh, what do we have to look forward to coming up from any of you in your work or or uh, podcasting or anything that you're doing online? Uh, the next episode of Gray Malkin Lane, we're going to be covering this final uh, issue of this long storyline Uh, in Avengers number 53. uh, And we are going to have the incredibly uh, talented transgender uh, graphic novelist, Casey Counselor coming on. uh, And we get to have some really wonderful conversations around uh, gender identity we're going to be joined by uh, Tristan Palmgren as well as Karen Charm and it's going to be a really wonderful um, uh, episode uh, upcoming uh, Karen drew the uh, the stranger on my wall back here <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's go in the same order uh, Douglas Corey then Arturo where can people find you and what do you have coming up uh, you
1: can find me at douglaswolk.com uh, twitter at twitter I'm also Walk, and I've been doing like weekly flashbacks there to the romance comics that came out exactly 50 years ago today the day oh, amazing. Uh, on Mondays. Uh, also, I am hoping that by early June, my podcast, Voice of Latveria, will return. Uh, if not, it'll be soon after. It is a weekly podcast going through every appearance of Dr. Doom in comics, not in publication order or even Marvel chronology order, but the order that Doom himself experienced it. They are different because Doom has a time machine. Mm-hmm.
2: What? I'm excited for that.
0: I need to go listen. I hadn't, I wasn't aware of your pod before. That's uh, great. I mean
1: so, so Voice of Latveria is nominally a uh, short, a Cold War era shortwave news broadcast, uh, broadcast by Latvian State Radio. So. I so, love
3: it. That's great. That's brilliant.
1: Uh, Corey, how about
2: you? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this part's always really easy for me. I don't create any content. I just consume. Resources. So I'll just use this, this moment. To, to thank Douglas for coming on I, after after and writing this um, book that I got to read, uh, Chad for always including me, bringing me into the podcast. One of my favorite things is when Chad texts me and asks me if I want to if I'm available on a certain date for for a podcast recording. So yeah, uh, I uh, that that's that it. I guess uh, Corey just, thanks.
0: <laughs> Cory brings Cory brings his kids over every couple of weeks with my kids and we have like a Disney night and pizza. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's good to see you, man. And Arturo, how about you?
3: Um, thank you, Chad, for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you. And uh, it's, a, it's been great just chatting with you guys. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram, and you can mostly find me over at X's for podcast uh, every week, covering comics, talking about mutants and getting into it uh, so yeah
0: uh, as mentioned before we also have the trial of the toad coming up it's going to be great i hope you loved the trial of the blob we're putting a lot of work in and i'm uh, working on the trials for the next couple months after that we've got some great stuff uh coming up uh, we'll see you guys back here next time on gray malkin lane arturo Corey, douglas thank you so much for being with us here today this was a blast thank you so much for listening to gray malkin lane I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray
2: Malkin Lane.